Chapter Three of the Women Who Make Our Novels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. The Women Who Make Our Novels by Grant Overton. Chapter Three. Ellen Glasgow. Ellen Glasgow's first two books were produced before she was twenty. She is a Virginian like Mary Johnston, but a realist. Better, a disciple of naturalism, and concerned with social and personal problems of the last thirty years. A dozen books stand to her credit, all novels except a book of verse, nearly all concerned with the social reconstruction in the South. Banish the connotations of the word reconstruction as used respecting the South. The period immediately following the end of the Civil War is almost the sole property of Thomas Dixon. Miss Glasgow's province for a number of years, and a number of books, has been the more gradual and more fateful making over of the South into something reasonably homogeneous with the rest of the United States than the leisured feudalism of the fifties and the hopeless wreck of the sixties. She is a novelist of manners, but of changing manners, of cycles and transformations, whether in the lives of individuals or the life of a region. Unlike Miss Johnston, she cannot revive the past for its own sake, but only for the sake of the present and the future. She is an evolutionist who has not read Darwin and Herbert Spencer in vain. Her writing is filled with a serious purpose, the purpose to put life before you, not merely as it is, but as she thinks you should see it. She does not preach or moralise, being far too fine an artist for such crudities. It is enough to have given you the facts in her interpretation of them. She is quietly confident that you will not be able to get away from them so presented, and you hardly ever are. Miss Glasgow has had to drive so hard and so strongly and so much alone, she has had to face such a vast inertia of tradition and such a tenacity of feeling that the struggle has narrowed her. She hates sentimentality, and rightly. It has been the terrible obstacle she has had to confront. Of her South, she once said, I love it, I was brought up in it, but all my life I've had to struggle against the South's sentimentality which I inherit. We shall sooner or later have to tear asunder the veil of sentimentality. Our people will have to realise that a statement made in criticism of the South is not an act of disloyalty. Please say that in as kind a way as possible, Miss Glasgow added, probably with some compunction, for, as she said on another occasion, when asked what the Southerners thought about her, I have no idea. They are very kind to me. To finish her words about the struggle with inherited sentimentality, I say it is as a Southerner, she explained. We must cultivate within us truth instead of sentimentality, which up to now has been our darling vice. These words were uttered in New York in the fall of 1912, a few months before the publication of her novel, Virginia. The title referring, however, not to her state, but to the heroine of the book, Virginia Pendleton. You can't fight sentimentality with tolerance, and it is Miss Glasgow's handicap that to write the great book she has written, to succeed as she has succeeded under the most adverse conditions and in the most adverse environment, she has had to contract her horizon, even to shut her eyes and thrust with all her might ahead. Surrounded by sentimentality and the tradition of a past whose glorious perfection it were treason to question, she has not been able always to see things clearly and to see them whole. In the early part of 1916, 
she declared that contemporary english fiction was superior to american fiction that americans were demanding from writers and politicians alike an evasive idealism and a sham optimism and a sugary philosophy utterly without any basis in logic or human experience there was some more to the same effect but let us not harrow the souls of ourselves who rejoice in ellen glasgow's work by recalling any more of it she was wrong dead wrong we think she would be the first to admit it now but whether she would or not she is pretty completely to be excused if never to be defended she was best answered at the time by booth tarkington the greatest living american writer of fiction with the allowable exception of william dean howells said tarkington it is human nature to desire optimism in anybody in a doctor or a friend or a farmhand or a dog of course the public desires optimism in a book and it wants not the cheapest sort of sham optimism but the finest sort of genuine optimism that it can understand naturally the average understanding isn't the highest understanding nevertheless the writer who stoops to conquer doesn't conquer mr tarkington went on to say miss glasgow is sorry that there are so many writers willing to supply the demand for sugary philosophy but those writers are not only willing to supply they are inspired to supply they aren't superior people turning the trick for money as miss glasgow seems to think they are giving the best that is in them they take their art solemnly the truest word on the subject ever uttered and most essential to be reprinted here it is not so much for the refutation of miss glasgow that we give it the full application of mr tarkington's remarks will be seen in some of the later chapters of this book but to return to our southern realist ellen anderson golson glasgow was born in richmond virginia april twenty second eighteen seventy four the daughter of francis thomas glasgow and anne jane golson glasgow her father belonged to a family of professional men lawyers judges educators the child was of a delicate health she never went to school an admission she makes with a blush an aunt used to tell her scott's stories at an age when mother goose is the customary intellectual fare at thirteen she read and enjoyed robert browning he is still her favourite poet though swinburne has a great place in her affections quite unaccountably miss glasgow showed a taste for scientific subjects at eighteen she began a systematic study of political economy and socialism her love for a story remained strong the home was a strict southern home the women in it were sheltered the young woman would shut herself up in her room every day and later join the family for such diversions as they indulged in finally she went to her father and said father i have written a book isaac f marcoson says that father was dumbfounded and well he might have been the novel was published anonymously and was generally supposed to be the work of a man of training and experience it was the descendant and it has been characterized as a rather morbid exposition of the development and life of an intellectual hybrid the offspring of a low woman and a highly intellectual man the first book in which miss glasgow established her right to serious consideration as an american novelist as a novelist picturing american life was the voice of the people published in nineteen hundred she has referred in after years to the descendant as a mere schoolgirl effort although it was not received as such not by a long shot but she could not so characterize the voice of the people nor could anyone else 
it is a competent picture of the virginia of the eighties with its class distinctions and its political manoeuvring framing a specific and dramatic story the novel exhibits a considerable knowledge of political machinery and the characteristic tale relates how miss glasgow got some of the necessary atmosphere in eighteen ninety seven she drove over twenty miles in the hottest august weather in order to sit through two days of a democratic state convention an old family friend a delegate to the convention smuggled miss glasgow and her sister on to the stage of the opera house in which the sessions were held they were the only women in the building and the ordeal of listening to two days of southern oratory must have been as severe as the ordeal of sitting obscurely and uncomfortably in a sun-baked theatre it is also said of miss glasgow that she remarked one day to a friend mr mark Oson, if we are not mistaken i am going to write a novel of new york life but why new york life when you know virginia and the south so well for the simple reason that art has no locality it is universal i do not believe that any writer should be confined to any particular locality a reply which throws light on miss glasgow's earnestness and seriousness of purpose but she was while entirely right in what she said not answering the question art has no locality but the artist has necessarily only a few localities those he knows tolerably well miss glasgow's pictures of new york life never carried the conviction that her virginia settings do her own virginia setting is a very lovely one number one west main street richmond is a square old white house hemmed in by trees that cast shade over the soldiers of the confederacy behind it is a garden in which walks and composes a beautiful woman with red gold hair the real titian shade or simply red brown as you may decide it is wavy and has gold and copper gleams once more you get the touch of jane austen explains mr mark Oson. he tells us that miss glasgow writes every morning and always behind a locked door a door that is not locked has always given her a hint of possible intrusion the only animate thing that has ever shared the comradeship of her work is her dog joy she writes rapidly and in a large masculine hand rapidly perhaps but not finally nearly every bit of virginia and life and gabriella was rewritten at least three times some parts more and one chapter was rewritten thirteen times it sounds incredible but miss glasgow says so herself she used to write with a pen but now does her first draft in pencil and revises after it has been typewritten and always novels i cannot write short stories miss glasgow explains they bore me excruciatingly the whole technique of the short story and the novel is different all the best of the short stories must be painfully condensed with slight regard for the evolutionary causes bringing about this or that effect everything that i see i see in the form of a novel as a large canvas i want to trace the process of cause and effect and that is why both virginia and gabriella were a joy in the writing those books do not deal with problems i do not ever let a problem get into my novels there is none except of course as some problem of an individual life may present itself to the character i am not concerned with any propaganda a book should never serve any purpose but the telling of life as it is being faithfully realistic and realism is only the truth of life told and is the writer's true business 
Hawthorne was strongly realistic. He did not try to be pleasing or pleasant. He wrote things as he saw them. I must live with a character a long time. Then the desire to write comes, and I begin after that to shape the background, and the details of plot weave into their proper places. I never force myself to begin a piece of work, nor force myself to keep at it, when the something within stops, and I never get an idea by looking for one. They just come, always unexpectedly, and always at the most inopportune times and places, at a reception, on the train, on the street. When Miss Glasgow says that she does not let a problem get into her novels, she means that she does not put it there, or consciously put it there. She selects her people, who have their individual problems as she concedes, and brings them into relation with each other, and from that relation a problem may arise, probably does. But that is a natural and artistic procedure, the perfect antithesis of the propagandist's methods. Once, to Montrose J. Moses, Miss Glasgow talked rather freely about novel writing and her literary ideals. There are three things a novelist has to do to prove himself, she declared. First, he must show an ability to create personalities. Second, he must exhibit a sincerity of style. And third, he must evince the capacity for an intelligent criticism of life. Without these, he is not worth very much in a serious big way. To contribute to the knowledge and understanding of life, that should be his motive in writing, not primarily to create a pleasant impression. There have been several stages in our growth since the special type of fiction was evolved. There was the sentimentality of Richardson, then came my favourite, Fielding, our first realist, and finally arrived the critical period, with its early representative in Jane Austen and more recent upholder in Meredith. We had to pass through stages far from real life before we reach the time of direct dealing with life, of real criticism of life. Take such men as Wells and Galsworthy, and maybe Arnold Bennett. Are they not trying to see life through and through? I do not believe in the realism that merely depicts for the picture. Realism of the kind I mean not only depicts, but interprets as well. How about Fielding, your favourite? asked Mr Moses. Oh, he had his faults, but they were honest ones. Mr. Moses remarked Miss Glasgow's enthusiasm as she talked. He was the first to teach us that life and ordinary life, too, has poetry in it. There are some of our writers with a social conscience who use narrative as a mere vehicle for philosophy. It is always well to have a big central idea to hold the building together, but realism, though some novelists would separate it, cannot be practised apart from vision. The novelist must have a perspective in life. When I first began writing, I steeped myself in economics, in sociology, and later in German mysticism. But one learns only that he may unlearn if necessary. In doing Virginia, I was obliged to revisit certain localities to refresh my memory of things. But I could not write of them immediately. The impressions had to filter through my imagination. A man who writes for his age seldom writes for any other, and that is why I do not believe in being consciously local. Mr Howells, as our greatest realist, made us see the poetry of the life he knew best. While I've never consciously been influenced by any school, I have felt what he has done for the novel. At one time, I knew my Balzac, my Flaubert, my Guy de Mossopon by heart, and of course I read the Russians, who I think are the greatest of all novelists. But as far as I am aware, I have worked my own method out for myself. 
because she believes so much in the novel form miss glasgow has never written a play nor ever consented to the dramatization of any of her books i like the flow of the novel she says it is the best expression of the people and the times the drama cannot comprehend all of life as it is to-day a larger canvas is needed to picture the greater complexity the greatest drama was written in times when life was far more simple than it is now the novel alone can take in its flow all of this complexity add to miss glasgow's literary tastes maeterlinck spinoza ruskin and the bible she was for years tremendously interested mr marcosen's words in the literature of the orient there is a little brass buddha on her desk in the house in richmond the fatalistic touch or more accurately the sense of the law of recompense and the payments life is always exacting pervades her stories certain ideas are for her garbed in definite phrases take for example the titles of two of her books the wheel of life nineteen o six and the ancient law nineteen o eight they merely repeat the titles of the final chapter and the final book respectively in her earlier novel the deliverance for some years miss glasgow has divided her time between her richmond home and a pleasant new york apartment overlooking central park an apartment which somehow with its books its portrait of miss glasgow empanelled its white pillars at the entrance to the reception room its books 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 in mahogany cases preserves a good deal of the atmosphere of a southern home miss glasgow comes to new york for the change and also to get the life of new york which has alternated with the life of virginia in her later books virginia as her most popular book and the cause of a considerable controversy on its appearance in nineteen thirteen must receive some attention in this sketch it is the first book of a trilogy provided miss glasgow writes the third life and gabriella was the second book of the uncompleted trilogy let us see what miss glasgow has had to say about these books we assume that the reader knows her to have been an ardent suffragist and advocate of economic independence for her sex success for a woman miss glasgow is speaking must be about the same as for a man success for a woman means a harmonious adjustment to life material success is not success if it does not also bring happiness the great thing in life is the development of character to a point where one may mould his destiny one must use the circumstances of life rather than be used by them the greatest success for a woman is to be the captain of her own soul women have always been in revolt this in answer to a question as to whether life and gabriella was intended to express the modern revolt of women it is only now that the revolt is strong enough to break through the crust no matter what her condition or class woman does not now have to marry for support because she is ashamed to be unmarried or because she is hounded to it by her relatives she dare remain single i believe that marriage should be made more difficult and divorce easier i also believe that divorce laws should be made more uniform laws made for traffic and commercial ends may need to be changed when a certain arbitrary boundary is passed but laws made for human nature should be everywhere the same for the man who lives in california and the one in maine are just men the mistake women wives have always made is that they have concentrated too intensely on emotion they have made emotion the only thing in the world husband and wife must be mentally companionable if their happiness is to last through the years i find one of the most fascinating dramas in all the facets of life to be the great epic of changing conditions and the adjustment of individuals to the new order 
naturally the battle is always sharpest and most dramatic in those places where the older system has been most firmly entrenched and that is why the coming of the new order in the south has been attended by so many dramatic stories when i began virginia i had in mind three books dealing with the adjustment of human lives to changing conditions in virginia i wanted to do the biography of a woman representative of the old system of chivalry and showing her relation to that system and the changing order virginia's education like that of every well-bred southern woman of her day was designed to paralyse her reasoning faculties and to eliminate all danger of mental unsettling virginia was the passive and helpless victim of the ideal of feminine self-sacrifice the circumstances of her life first moulded and then dominated her gabriella was the product of the same school but instead of being used by circumstances she used them to create her own destiny the two books are exact converses where virginia is passive gabriella is active virginia desired happiness but did not expect it much less fight for it and consequently in a system where self-sacrifice was the ideal of womanhood she became submerged by circumstances just as have been so many other women of her type gabriella on the other hand desired happiness and insisted on happiness gabriella had the courage of action and through moulding circumstances wrested from life her happiness and success and the third book the reader must not think from the condensed and coalesced extracts of what miss glasgow has said about her work that she talks readily she does not you have sometimes rather to drag it out of her that is what you want concerning her own work on literature generally she talks with freedom wisdom and point the third book may never be written miss glasgow answered if it should be it will deal with a woman who faces her world with the weapons of indirect influence or subtlety gabriella's philosophy was summed up in her words i want to be happy i have a right to be happy and it depends on myself no life is so hard that you can't make it easier by the way you take it in the face of disaster which would have broken the hearts of many women she won her success her happiness from the cruelties of life i believe miss glasgow once said that a person gets out of life just what he puts into it or rather he puts in more than he gets out i suppose for he is always working for something unattainable always groping vaguely with his spirit to find the hidden things gabriella as you may remember was obliged to believe in something or die we have heard miss glasgow tell how she lives with a character she is or was living with the character which will become the central figure in the third novel of her probable trilogy the time is not right to write she said when last speaking about this possible book as soon as i begin to speak of the character it all leaves me for some years i wrote one book every two years three years elapsed between virginia and life and gabriella i have no idea when the next will be finished i cannot understand how anyone can finish and publish two books a year regularly it seems that one ought to give more of oneself to a book than that for my own part i should like to write each novel and keep it ten years before i publish it but my friends tell me of course that is impossible you change so much in ten years all would be different you would be obliged to write it all over again i suppose that is true very true but the dissatisfaction with the ten-year-old novel would be the dissatisfaction of the conscientious artist ellen glasgow it would not be the dissatisfaction of the novel reader at least re-reading the deliverance these fourteen years after its first publication 
your admiration for miss glasgow's finished art her sense of drama her penetration of the human heart her portraitive skill her fine sense of the retributive conscience implanted in the human breast all these blended perceptions and satisfactions are as lively as they were when the book first came out really the only difference is that now you look confidently for them and are though no less rejoiced and grateful not in the least surprised at the finding miss glasgow's peculiar brilliance has never received a more honest or better tribute than in what jean stratton porter had to say after reading virginia it is worth quoting in full the writings of miss ellen glasgow have always possessed a unique and special charm for me that has carried me from one book to another for the pleasure derived from reading with no special effort on my part to learn just why i enjoyed them last summer a man quoted in my presence a line of miss glasgow's something like this not being able to give her the finer gift of the spirit he loaded her with jewels my dictionary defines an epigram a bright or witty thought tersely and sharply expressed often ending satirically a saying like this almost reaches that level at any rate it stuck in my mind and when a friend recently sent me a copy of miss glasgow's latest book i began reading it with the thought in mind that i would watch and see if she could say other things of like quality my patience she rolls them unendingly before i had read twenty pages i realised just where lay the charm that had always held me it was not in plot nor in character drawing not in construction it was in the woman expressing her own individuality with her pen what a gift of expression she has i know of no other woman and very few men who can equal her on this one point chesterton does the same thing with a champagne sparkle and bubble but i would hesitate to say that even he surpasses her for while he is bubbling and sparkling on the surface charming alluring holding one she is down among the fibres of the heart her bright brain and keen wit cutting right and left with the precision of a skilled surgeon not so witty but fully as wise you have only to read virginia to convince yourself having married they immediately proceeded as if by mutual consent to make the worst of it having lived through the brief illumination of romance she had come at last into that steady glow which encompasses the commonplace to demand that a pretty woman should possess the mental responsibility of a human being would have seemed an affront to his inherited ideas of gallantry if the texture of his soul was not finely wrought the proportions of it were heroic from the day of his marriage he had never been able to deny her anything she had set her heart upon not even the privilege of working herself to death for his sake when the opportunity offered you know how abby is about men yes i know and it's just the way men are about abby how on earth could she go out sewing by the day if she didn't have her religious convictions anybody who has mixed with beggars oughtn't to turn up his nose at a respectable bank but he says that it's because the bank is so respectable that he doesn't think he could stand it she was as respectable as the early eighties and the twenty-one thousand inhabitants of dinwiddie permitted a woman to be these lines are offered as a taste of her quality and they roll from her pen in every paragraph in accordance with the general method of this book we have thought it best to put ellen glasgow certainly a genius certainly one of the greatest living american novelists perhaps one of the greatest since there has been an american literature we have thought it best to put her we say before the reader chiefly in her own words and in her aspect to others just as she would herself let a character in one of her books reveal himself by his speeches and his actions 
and stand before you as the other characters sized him up she would not tell you what sort of man he was and require you to swallow her account of him she would set him before you talking and going about she would give you the impression he made on those about him and let you judge him for yourself the only right way we have only one thing more which we want to point out at the close miss glasgow's insight into the mind and conscience of her people it is best illustrated and we give the close of a chapter in the deliverance after all is not this wonderful story the finest of miss glasgow's novels we wonder christopher blake the illiterate heir of a great name the cherisher of an undying hate has succeeded in ruining or hastening the ruin of will fletcher grandson of the man who stole the blake plantation it is blake's revenge he can reach old fletcher through the boy and he has done it he a blake living in a wretched shack while the erstwhile negro overseer dwells at blake hall before him were his knotted and blistered hands his long limbs outstretched in their coarse clothes but in the vision beyond the little spring he walked proudly with his rightful heritage upon him a blake by force of blood and circumstance the world lay before him bright alluring a thing of enchanting promise and it was as if he looked for the first time upon the possibilities contained in this life upon the earth for an instant the glow lasted the beauty dwelt upon the vision and he beheld clear and radiant the happiness which might have been his own then it grew dark again and he faced the brutal truth in all its nakedness he knew himself for what he was a man debased by ignorance and passion to the level of the beasts he had sold his birthright for a requital which had sickened him even in the moment of fulfilment to do him justice now that the time had come for an acknowledgment he felt no temptation to evade the judgment of his own mind nor to cheat himself with the belief that the boy was marked for ruin before he saw him that will had worked out in vicious weakness his own end it was not the weakness after all that he played upon it was rather the excitable passion and the whimpering fears of the hereditary drunkard he remembered now the long days that he had given to his revenge the nights when he tossed sleepless while he planned a widening of the breach with fletcher that at least was his work and his alone the bitter hatred more cruel than death with which the two now stood apart and snarled it was a human life that he had taken in his hand he saw that now in his first moment of awakening a life that he had destroyed as deliberately as if he had struck it dead before him day by day step by step silent unswerving devilish he had kept about his purpose and now at the last he had only to sit still and watch his triumph with a sob he bowed his head in his clasped hands and so shut out the light powerful yes the passage shows an unlimited mastery of the novelist's real material the human soul the deliverance is a story of revenge with few equals and that we can recall no superiors but it goes far beyond that because it shows also the retributive and regenerative forces at work in christopher blake and their final effect upon him the hour in which he surrenders himself to justice as fletcher's murderer while the dead man's grandchild flees is the outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual reformation a reformation to come but to be preceded by an atonement wonderful among heroines is maria fletcher wonderful infinitely pathetic matchlessly moving is the blind grandmother sitting stiff and straight in her elizabethan chair directing the hundreds of slaves who are slaves no longer 
discoursing upon the duties of the children who inherit a splendid name recalling with tenderness and spirit and racial pride the great people of her youth giving orders that are never executed eating her bit of chicken and sipping her port blind blind successfully deceived successfully kept alive and contented and in a sort of way happy these twenty years since the slave phyllis got some ridiculous idea about freedom in her head and ran away with the yankee soldiers before we whipped them a magnificent portrait by an artist of whom america can never be anything but proud books by ellen glasgow the descendant eighteen ninety seven phases of an inferior planet eighteen ninety eight the voice of the people nineteen hundred the freeman and other poems nineteen o two the battleground nineteen o two the deliverance nineteen o four the wheel of life nineteen o six the ancient law nineteen o eight the romance of a plain man nineteen o nine the miller of old church nineteen eleven virginia nineteen thirteen life and gabriella nineteen sixteen miss glasgow's first two books were brought out by harper and brothers new york all the rest are published by doubleday page and company new york End of chapter three